This is Humans of Medicine, a podcast where we interview and learn about different types of people in medicine and research. If you ever looked up at the night sky and had the really specific thought of, hey, I want to be a doctor and go to space, then this is the episode for you. I chatted with Henry, a third year MD student at the University of Sydney. He'll explain his journey a bit more in the pod, but Henry's an Aussie that went over to the States to study a mix of science and arts at Duke and Columbia University. Mixed in with all of this is his passion for space and the beyond, which has given him a fascinating list of experiences from interning at NASA, researching tissue regeneration, and organizing Australia's space biology conferences. We chatted about his journey so far, some exciting current developments in space medicine, and why now is a good time for all those future doctor astronauts to start thinking about the field. Hope you enjoy. Really appreciate you coming onto the podcast, Henry. No problem. I wanted to start off talking a little bit about, you know, where you're currently at in your medicine journey. And so I've got this classic interview question for you to start off with. What brought you to medicine? Yeah, so I actually took a pretty long-winded path to medicine. Not sure if everyone knows, but I um, actually went to undergrad overseas. So that's a four-year degree. Um, After that, I thought about what I should do afterwards, whether that's getting a job, more education or professional schooling. And so I ended up choosing a master's degree in New York City. And uh, it was during the time of COVID. So a lot of um, uncertainties around that area. But at the end of that, you know, once you finish with the master's, it's either a PhD or an MD usually. Hmm. And I had a bit of a think about this. And I thought, you know, with COVID happening and, you know, the whole situation in America, I thought it might be best just to come home. And so... Thankfully, I had a place here at Sydney, mm. and uh, I started in 2021, and so this year I'm a third year, and mm. right now I'm in pediatrics. Awesome. Maybe on that as well, was medicine kind of always on the cards, or when you were going overseas, what were you most interested in then? Yeah, this is actually um, a good question, because back in high school, and I think a lot of us can relate to this, you know, our parents wanted us to be doctors or to be lawyers, <laughs> something like that. Engineers, yeah, Engineers, classic. something like that. Well, back then, computer science wasn't even on the tables, but nowadays that's another option. But Really? Okay, anyway, <laughs> go on. <laughs> generational difference. Yeah, but my parents, I guess, and my, my grandma, she's a doctor, uh, they wanted me to be mm-hmm. a doctor. But towards the end of high school, I kind of had a self-awareness moment. Where I thought, <laughs> yep. hey maybe this isn't what I want to do yeah um, it's kind of prompted by my career advisor who kind of was a bit of a pretty direct and harsh person he asked me mm. why I wanted to be a doctor and back then I was 17 and I didn't really have a good answer <laughs> yeah I don't know yeah. 17 well how much do you know about the world right <laughs> well exactly and so that really got me thinking I said maybe this isn't it and am I just playing into the stereotype So actually, when I first started university uh, back in 2015, uh, that was still here in Australia. I was in the the USID Aeronautical Space Engineering Program. Uh, It's actually a pretty small cohort, about like 10, 20 kids back then. Um, And the goal for that program really was satellite development, um, plane development, and Hmm. maybe at that time, the early stages of rocket development outside the United States. But I got through about six months of that, realized I was no good at engineering or computers. <laughs> and uh, at that time, I kind of had the opportunity to go overseas to study as well. So I kind of dropped that 
And when I went to, to school overseas, I actually did something completely different. Um, I studied a bit of everything. We call it a liberal arts education in America. So did anthropology as my, my major concentration, um, minor concentrations in biology, chemistry, but touched on everything from sociology to psychology, philosophy, kind of that broad, waffly kind of education. Mm -hmm. uh, but at the same time, did what we call a pre-medical curriculum. And so in the case that I did want to go to medical school, I'd done the requirements to do so. And uh, somehow found my way back to doing all of this space-related thing. I did an internship at NASA, which we can talk about later on. Yeah, for sure. And uh, that kind of got me thinking about, you know, what can I do with space? What can I do with biology or chemistry? Mm. And so the master's was actually in bioengineering, and I was kind of going in that direction. And I think mm. right now, coming back to medicine, it's about how we can combine those interests and um, leverage engineering, technology, and medicine, kind of create solutions for people here on Earth and in space. So that's kind of like the long-winded yeah. answer of <laughs> yeah. Mm, that's awesome, man. It sounds like you started off interested in space with aeronautical engineering. And then when you went to America, you kind of broadened your scope of everything that you were interested in. And now you've come back and settling on medicine or some kind of intersection between medicine and space, right? Yeah, I think, you know, space is one of those interesting and unique kind of offshoots of medicine that is going to be a, a huge thing in the next 20 years. Mm. I think broadly speaking, it's um, kind of at the intersection of medicine, technology, and humanities. Mm. I'm not a scientific person by any means, so <laughs> I'm definitely trying to lean into that you know, humanities aspect as well. Gotcha. And I I know, you know, you've already talked about aeronautical engineering, kind of, I'm guessing, starting your interest in space more generally as a career option. But would you say you've always been interested in space? Where did that kind of interest, would you say, really began? Well, I think, you know, all of us growing up, especially as young boys, we watched like Star Wars, Star Trek, and yeah, classic sci-fi, that kind of thing. And, you know, if you ask any kid these days, oh, what would you want to be when you grew up? A lot of them might say an astronaut or something like that. And I think for some reason in high school, I thought, why are people going into pathways that they, as a kid, would never consider going into? So I had a thing against all the business <laughs> majors and the commerce majors. Because I yeah. thought, as a kid, no one says, I want to go work for a huge corporation. And, um, hey, and there might be a few of those. There might be a few uh, of those. Maybe, but I think yeah. it's far and few. Mm. And I thought, well, if I wanted to be an astronaut as a kid, like why wouldn't I try and do something like that in real mm. life? Mm. Um, and so throughout high school, I kind of had that at the back of my mind. Um, and then when I found out that you said an engineering program for space engineering, I thought, well, this could be the ticket. And uh, back in high school as well, we had this kind of symposium with, you know, the higher admin in our, in our school. Mm. And everyone had to kind of present, you know, like a big topic that they were interested in. And at that time, I was 16 or 17, I think. My presentation was about extraterrestrial habitation and kind of, you know, like. if you looked at Dyson spheres and those kind of like engineering structures. Mm. And I thought, well, if they're in science fiction um, and then people like 
who are just writers can think about these things like why can't we actually build them as engineers and scientists mm. Mm -mm -mm. Um, and so that kind of fed my interest and so even when I did switch out of engineering I still had that at the back of my mind mm. and the master yeah. opportunity came about mm. uh, kind of uh, pounced on that because I thought you know this is the first time I can really combine my interests um, mm. yeah for sure yeah definitely sounds like it came from an early age um I'm curious as well. I'm, I mean, I'm sure you've heard of this guy called uh, Johnny Kim. Yes, yes. Yes. Course. The uh, the NASA Navy SEAL uh, medical guy. Um, I'm, I'm curious, is that kind of, well, I don't know if role model is the right word, but is, do you kind of see yourself potentially if all the opportunities lined up, you know, would that kind of be something you're interested in? Well, I'm not sure if I'll ever get to the Navy SEAL part. <laughs> Medicine and astronaut then. <laughs> I mean, it could do a two out of three combination. Um, but it's acceptable. <laughs> well yeah just acceptable <laughs> like what i think about medicine is that you know there should be something that you can do outside of medicine as well and whether that's you know joining the navy seals or doing some space related thing someone like johnny kim is not really telling us that we need to be three out of three seal astronaut yeah. and doctor it's more like there are different possibilities and career options that you can mm. pursue and just to be open-minded about that and so you know I don't necessarily think that my life would be a failure if I didn't become an astronaut or didn't become a Navy SEAL or whatnot um, but I think if someone has done something like this then it's definitely doable for the rest of us um, mm. so that's something that we can all kind of strive towards. Definitely think that's the right message to take away and not for you know subtle Asian traits to propagate into all Asian parents be like your kids should be like this guy. This is oh, the only right way. <laughs> that's too much. No, no, thanks for that. Um, And I think I wanted to dig into space a bit more. And obviously, because, you know, you're a man you know, in that early stage getting versed in the space. And as a medical student who knows nothing about space, I had a few questions I was curious about. And, you know, I'd love for you to answer to the best of your ability. Yep, sure thing. The first question here is, what do you think is the most challenging aspect, biolog biologically or otherwise, of keeping humans alive in space? Yeah, so that's a good question because the word alive actually has um, oh, crap. Things to break down in terms yeah, right. of um, what that means. And you can keep anything alive, really, even on Earth. And that's why we have things like intensive care. Um, but to really be alive and to kind of thrive. And, you know, the reason why we're pe sending people up to space isn't just to have a joyride, at least right now. Um, mm -hmm. It's really to be operators and researchers um, in space. And so that requires more than just being alive. You need to really be at the peak of your physical and mental health, um, psychologically on top of things as well. But if you had to break it down, to first principles, uh, there are two things in space that are really different to the environment here on Earth. And that's the presence of radiation. And there are many forms of radiation that we can talk about. And also microgravity, uh, or the absence of what we call 1G on Earth. And these two things kind of create like a physical environment that's a bit different and hard for humans to adapt to. And uh, there's a whole bunch of sequelae because of these um, mm. these these changes, uh, but the most obvious ones you can kind of think about are, you know, in terms of gravity, you don't have the loading on your body, and so muscles, bones, 
they all become out of sync. They can't really detect any physical stimulus from the environment. Um, and so you do get things like muscular and um, mm. bone degeneration. Mm. And uh, we essentially call it kind of accelerated aging phenotype in space. And, you know, in addition to that, the radiation is inducing damage to your DNA, would be direct damage, be indirect through free radical generation. And essentially, it's not a nice place to be in space. Um, your body is not adapted to that. <laughs> like nothing on Earth and nothing that has ever happened on Earth in the mm. last billion, few billion years of life has mm. been adapted for space. And so really, the whole challenge of going to space is creating a kind of system, an engineering system as well, uh, to support life in space until we get to the stage where we can say evolution has taken the reins and changed the entire pathway of you know, human civilization out of that. <laughs> but uh, until then, uh, we'll, we will be relying on a lot of engineering support. Hmm. And so we need to address those two things, so gravity and radiation. Gravity and radiation. Okay. An easy feat to conquer then, of course. I was I was curious as well because um just because we recently finished the MSK block um yes. when you're talking about things like obviously the lack of loading on your bones where you know if you think back to your first year the the classic things that we learned about were things like osteoporosis or osteoarthritis and etc would you say those kind of um diseases would be most com more common in space Yeah well it's not really that such that you'll get you know a minimal trauma fracture in space it's mm. more so that when you come back from space and certainly mm. not having permanent residence up in space these days, but when you get back from space and you're trying to rehabilitate, get used to mm. gravity again, uh, your bones obviously adapted to the environment in space. Um, and so the question is, when you get back, are you at increased risk of fractures? Mm. Um, do you need further support in terms of bisphosphonates or you know, other on antibodies for osteoporosis, et cetera. Mm. And if we should be treating, you know, the space flight induced kind of osteoporosis, is that really the same condition as osteoporosis on earth? Or mm. is that a distinct kind of disease phenotype? And so these are all kind of different considerations to think about, but certainly we are using our knowledge of what happens on earth mm. to kind of compare that to what happens um, to the astronauts that come back from space. And so a lot of the kind of clinical information and you know, knowledge that we are building up in medical school and, and in research are really important uh, to helping us fight those disease processes in space. That's fascinating, right? Because you'd be thinking more along the lines of, you know, would these drugs be, you know, relevant or the first line therapies that we currently have for so-called earth osteoporosis versus space osteoporosis? Because it's, you know, I imagine it's completely um, well, it's the fundamental physiology, I imagine, is the same, but the subsequent pathology and how it develops and how you reacclimatize to Earth would be different. Right. That's exactly. very interesting. You know, thanks for appeasing me there. I was definitely testing your first year recall, so I'm impressed that you still remember yeah. the phosphonates and aldosterone and all that. <laughs> Maybe moving tack a little bit to kind of, you know, what's currently happening in the field. Um, right. I know that you've been helping out with research to do with tissue regeneration, drug delivery, you know, all that kind of stuff. I was curious, what are you currently most excited about in the field? Yeah, the um, proliferation of kind of commercial spaceflight is really interesting <clears> because, you know, for the first time, we'll be sending people that 
are not physically at their peak to space. Whether you think that's dangerous or not, um, that's a different conversation. But uh, there is no stopping this kind of commercialization because it's really the only way that we can sustain operations and expand it. Uh, we can't really rely too much on government research and funding to kind of expand in the way that we do need to expand. And so, you know, that's really interesting because, you know, once we see what the kind of normal response for normal people is up in space, uh, that will kind of shed a lot more lights on how we should deal with the problems there. Because as much as we like to describe you know, spaceflight-induced osteoporosis, et cetera, you know, these NASA astronauts who go up to space are, you know, in top condition. They train like four hours a day on the space station. So they're lifting weights, running, mm. resistance training. Um, and even with that, they get osteoporosis-related like bone degeneration. And so whether we have tourists going up for a long period of time or just going up for like a joyride, it'll be interesting to see you know, the kind of physiological, biological effects that happen to those astronauts. How would you say the space programs which have taken those astronauts up changed over the years? The reality is that, you know, the space programs of the 60s and 70s, going to the moon, etc., they were supported in large part by government and military backing. Mm. And um, these kind of missions were mostly for, like, exploration purposes. Whereas now we have a whole kind of expansion into, like, how do we make things commercially viable? Like, yes. Um, you know, even with like Starlink, like how do we use space for other like, you know, purposes like communications? Mm. And so to get this whole kind of global ecosystem up and running really requires, you know, big players like SpaceX and Blue Origin and whatnot, but also like small companies. We have mm. like startups here in Australia, New Zealand. Yeah, it's, it's for like sure. Lab. Australia has Gilmore Space. and Exactly. Australia. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just like a whole new dynamic. Mm. It's what they call new space. Mm. And new space is essentially like, you know, this new era of public-private partnerships. And mm. Interesting. Even like if you think about, you know, previously post-Cold War, we were still utilizing, you know, Russian rockets back in the day. But after that, we tried to develop like, like USA-only rockets. So that's why they had the space shuttle program. Um, but after that, like once that closed, we went back to like utilizing Russian rockets uh, to bring astronauts to space. Um, so geopolitically, it's all kind of confusing. Mm. Um, but with SpaceX, for example, um, now they're not really using like a American, like NASA rocket, but it's more like an American-owned company supplying mm. that rocket. Mm. And so you know, we have this kind of shift towards, you know, private companies being responsible for national interests. What do you think is most exciting in the Australian landscape in terms of space innovation? Well, Australia has a lot of these um, so-called like satellite companies, like mm. tube satellites, mm. and most of it's for research purposes, like you said, mm -hmm. or um, mm -hmm. testing plants, mm -hmm. microbes, little things. Mm. But the kind of impressive thing is we're trying to launch our own kind of facilities and rockets, et cetera. Mm. We do have a lot of like facilities to launch other countries stuff. So like in South Australia, Northern Territory, we have launch facilities and, you know, NASA can come use it or, you know, 
ESA, the European mm. Space Agency, can come use it. But in terms of our own launch sites and our own rockets, I think that's where a lot of these new companies and startups are mm. enter mm. that market. Um, mm. Homegrown mm. space companies. Is that a nature of kind of, in terms of like us being a good landing site, is that just the nature of our geography in terms of Australia having lots of nice barren land? Yeah, well, that too. And um, because uh, we do have, uh, in terms of like global satellite navigation, a lot of the triangulation uh, needs to occur between the US, Australia, and somewhere in Europe. Or, oh, right. Or in Asia. Gotcha. And so um, we are kind of like the the place to put <laughs> <laughs> these, yeah, these, yeah. these okay. um, gotcha. in the southern hemisphere yeah um, yeah because there are no really other like countries um mm. large enough and mm. technologically advanced enough mm, in mm. the southern hemisphere to really support that but you can think about like south america or africa but you know a lot of these like mm. u.s slash european kind of ventures are not really putting yes. multi-billion dollar technology yeah. in those countries so that makes sense what you're saying is Australia's tagline should be, hey, we're the place to launch your satellites. <laughs> Come on down. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's the launch. Uh, that's... Yeah, that's the one. Anyway, moving, moving back to some questions. Um, maybe I've got one more cheeky one in terms of space. And obviously, I know you're still early on in your journey of exploring everything. But how long would you say it would take until we start colonizing Mars or something like that? Well, I think this is a question that you know, some time ago, we might have thought was science fiction and kind of off in the very, very distant future. Uh, I don't think it is that much of a speculation anymore, because if you look at the NASA guidelines in terms of their um, blueprint in the next 50 years or what whatnot, the return to Mars actually starts in about five to 10 years. And that's with, um, you know, an unmanned mission. So no mm. astronauts going. But usually we follow up with manned missions quite early on after an unmanned mission if they're successful. And so you could be looking at humans touching foot on Mars within the next 15, 20 years. Yeah, right. And so for those of us who are interested in this field, it's really a good time to get started and to dip your feet in because by that time in 10, 15, 20 years, we'll be at the peak of our career. We'll have then our specialization training. And at that time, we'll need a lot more doctors on board mm. um, to help these ventures. And if you've actually looked at the astronaut profiles, you'll notice that a lot more of these astronauts are doctors. Mm. And it's because there are kind of requirements that for the missions to Mars, for example, we need one doctor to be on board because we can't yeah. do everything remotely. Mm. And so the opportunities for medical support and to be a doctor and an astronaut are increasing by the time that you know we get to that position that makes a lot of sense and i know we've touched on this a little bit already before but speaking to yourself in terms of your interests and your background um we mentioned johnny kim and potentially you becoming a doctor astronaut um as well as that kind of like being a pathway where would you ideally see yourself fitting into this world of space medicine yeah i think i'd see myself working as a flight surgeon that's the kind of term for these doctors who work for the um, space agencies or the space companies. So they do a lot of the evaluations for the astronauts, uh, like pre-flight, post-flight, and in-flight. Uh, they do the, all the checks. They do the health maintenance. 
they respond to emergencies. You know, when the astronauts do come back from space, there's a whole long-term monitoring process. And so it's almost like having a GP, but space focused and mm. you can do a whole bunch of things. Now to get into the field, there are many different pathways. Typically you'll either be a GP or what in America they call a family doctor. And uh, you could also have an emergency medicine background. And so my goal really is to go down the emergency pathway. And if space doesn't work out, I'm interested in other things like wilderness medicine, retrieval medicine, pre-hospital medicine, hopefully using the kind of medical background to work on other things like mm. you know, Antarctic medicine. And that's actually a big thing in Australia because we are actually by landmass, the biggest owners of Antarctica. Mm. There you um, go. <laughs> so we, we do a lot of research down there as well. Mm. Um, and if you're ever interested, like, like a MSF, that's a big program that requires a lot of these skills. Or if you want to go and do like um, mountaineering, and they require mm. doctors as well. Mm. So I think it's all about translating the skills from medicine to doing something else that you're interested in. Mm. And so that's where I see myself. So space is one of those things. And if that mm. doesn't work out, yeah, there are many other options out there. I'm seeing a common trend of extreme environments, space, Antarctica, the wilderness. Yeah, you're, you're a man yeah. who enjoys that. <laughs> <laughs> speaking a bit more towards your experiences um in space in general and you know we, we already talked a little bit about your uh, experience interning at nasa as a bioengineering intern how did you find your experience there did it excite you more about space tell me about it yeah the uh, experience at nasa was fantastic because it was actually a program geared towards international students and you know not that many opportunities to actually work at a facility like nasa and uh, the really interesting thing is just to see where your research fits in within the larger context. And certainly when we think about NASA and we're thinking about the missions and launching people to Mars and moon and whatever, like we want to think about the big picture things, but we don't realize that it's supported by a lot of small projects, small research things, you know, medication that they need to take for a certain condition may need to be uh, tinkered with and you know, there's a whole team working on that specific problem um, and so at NASA I was working on this uh, microbial factory that's what they call it uh, that produces you know, nutritional compounds and mm. so you know, the problem with going to space is that you know, the radiation breaks down a lot of the things that we bring up to space so mm. even the water that we bring up and that's mm. in danger um, and so when we think about bringing pills to space and mm. vitamins and all that stuff, you know, there's a risk that these compounds break down and have no efficacy. So we're kind of mm. shipping things up and having them break down and losing a lot of the um, mm. actual utility of those things. So mm. the alternative is to kind of generate them on site. And so a microbial factory essentially is the use of microbes and you can induce them into like a spore form to keep them safe from radiation. And then when you need to activate them, you activate them, they produce those compounds or those drugs or those vitamins. And you can kind of, um, you know, take those nutrients um, from the microbes directly. And that's another kind of medium for um, nutrients, et cetera. Mm. Yeah, I just thought you know, this is not a big project per se. And certainly, 
it might not ever make it to the space station. But it was just really cool to see that there are so many different ways of approaching these problems and mm. there are scientists working on them um, mm. all over America and throughout the world. Mm. And just to be part of that was just really good. To be at the facility, um, to oh, yeah. see the testing sites, the rockets, um, all of that stuff. That was just amazing. Great Mate, I think regardless of that goes, that happens in space, that sounds like a super fascinating project. And I feel like a lot of this conversation, I've, I think the way you've talked about how, you know, foundationally the things that we learn in medicine and that domain can be applied in such interesting and complex problems when you're up in space and how that different environment is just such a completely different world that we still haven't explored yet. And which is probably part of the reason why so many intelligent people are keen to get on that and think, how can we solve this? Henry, mate, thank you so much for coming on. I think it's been a really exciting chat about space. And I wanted to wrap up with this final question. Um, it's a quick one, which I've given to everyone so far on the podcast, which is what's the biggest piece of advice you'd give to a first year medical student? The biggest piece of advice I'd give to you guys is that just to keep yourself open-minded and not to stress too much about the content of medicine. I just remember coming into first year, not really knowing what a kidney was, not knowing what a mm-hmm. liver was, apart from that alcohol is bad for your liver. Mm-hmm. And um, I realized that you know, there's so much stress to be good at medicine, to know everything. And uh, that stress kind of never goes away because your whole cohort is also stressed about that. Mm-hmm. And um, you have to just kind of trust the process. I know that with each year, with each block, like that knowledge will build up and um, it's really hard to like understand this in the moment, but when you're like second year and your third year, people will you know, talk about things or disease processes or drugs and you'll just be like, oh yeah, I remember that from first year or <laughs> I know roughly what happens with this process and you can be reassured that as time goes on, um, that process just gets more solidified and by the time you're fourth year, uh, you'll definitely have a, a good solid foundation for medicine. It's mm. very reassuring to hear. And I think you're a perfect example of that with the osteoporosis take. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much, Henry. And uh, yeah, thank you for coming on the podcast. All right. Thanks, Kevin.